The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. According to ABS statistics, it is estimated that approximately 4 million Australians suffer back problems. Between 70 to 90% of people will experience lower back pain at some point in their life. Unfortunately, back and neck pain can cause significant physical disability as well as cost individuals and their families their livelihood. So today on MediTalk, we speak with spinal surgeon, Dr. Greg Cunningham from Neurospine Institute and St. John of God Hospital in Subiaco about spine health. So how many Australians are currently suffering from chronic neck and back pain? Unfortunately, it's a really, really common problem uh, in Australia. It's thought at the moment that around 70 to 90% of people will suffer some uh, form of lower back pain at some point in their life. But then Whilst most of those recover, unfortunately, there's around 16% of the Australian population that are currently affected by chronic either back or neck pain. And interestingly, it's it's such a big problem that it results as or it ends up being the most uh, common cause of early retirement. And then subsequently, it actually becomes one of the most common causes of what's called income poverty. So it's not only a really common problem, it's also a really severe problem when it does occur. This uh, then has a, a, a series of secondary effects, including uh, problems with people's quality of life, their psychological distress, and then a whole series of things regarding their uh, a whole body pain and the subsequent uh, disability that they experience as a person. And it's such a big burden on the community uh, that there's been a, a push now towards improving as a society in Australia how we deal with people who've got uh, lower back pain in both the acute setting and in, in the chronic setting. And so I uh, actually recently joined as an expert member on a, a clinical care standard for lower back pain committee, which is an, a national uh, working group to improve the way that this problem is managed. And the aim is to, to create a standardised approach that uses the most up-to-date scientific uh, evidence to improve the care that these people get, to not only try and prevent them going on to have chronic pain, but if they do have chronic pain, to then try and improve their situation. So it's sort of looking at preventing before you 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 have the problem. Absolutely, there's really clear markers that we can see with the pattern of people who have uh, lower back pain. So if people have lower back pain, yeah, most of it will settle down on its own accord. But if it doesn't settle down, implementations really need to be affected uh, strategically and rapidly to prevent people going on to have this lifelong disability. And then what are the most uh, sort of non-surgical treatment options that are most commonly used for back pain that, that you would recommend as a, as a spinal surgeon? There's a whole uh, array of different uh, options available to people out there if they do have spinal pain. And it can be difficult most of the time to, to work out what's the right thing uh, for you. So we really need to focus on things that uh, can be quickly adopted and are successful and don't require uh, an addictive type behaviour, be that an addictive type medication or an addictive type uh, reliance on other people uh, to, to help uh, 
treat their problem. And so the simple things are what I recommend and what I find and what have been uh, scientifically demonstrated to be the most useful. And so simple things like rest and avoiding that activity that caused the uh, back pain in the first place. Typically, these are uh, repetitive bending, lifting and twisting type activities that can be occupation related or in people's pastimes, uh, looking at the way that the uh, back pain occurred and then trying to prevent it from happening again and avoiding it. Um, it's important though that whilst people are resting, they're not uh, simply having bed rest. They need to, sure, rest while it's required, but really not be aiming to rest in bed for weeks on end while their back pain completely settles. They need to be doing the activities like walking and uh, trying to return to work as soon as possible. As they, particularly uh, as we all age, we can rapidly become uh, deconditioned and prolonged rest periods actually end up doing us more harm than good. There are simple stretching type exercises that Often people will rely on their physiotherapist to guide them through, but often the focus for lower back pain is stretching the hamstrings. Simple pain relief uh, medications can also be really helpful in the first couple of days if someone has a, a flare of their back pain. And they're just things that would come over the counter like paracetamol or anti-inflammatories if uh, you're a suitable person to have those. Then other simple uh, treatments like heat packs, Ice packs can be helpful. And some of the things that people might not have commonly thought about, so walking in water can be really quite helpful for people who have got a sore back and find they're struggling to perform any type of exercise or get back in their usual routine. And some people, if their back pain is playing up so much they can't even walk in water, simply floating around uh, with their legs, uh, so floating in an upright position with their legs dangling can be really quite uh, therapeutic and help to relieve the pain when their uh, spine is stretching out in, in the buoyancy of the water. I think you can get those sort of... Um special belts that help you float in the water uh, when you're doing aqua aerobics and things like that. But yeah, it sounds yeah. like what you're talking the, about. The pool noodle hangs are what we <laughs> uh, right. commonly refer to it as, but it's hard to describe a pool noodle hang. So. <laughs> <laughs> Most kids have one of those hanging around somewhere nowadays. Yeah. it's. Um, it, I mean, it's nice to know, though, that if people do experience back pain for the, the first time or the second time, that in the vast majority of cases, it will settle down on its own accord and often there's no no uh, specific cause of it uh, that needs to be investigated or, or uh, treated and things will settle down on their own accord. It's more of an overuse or, or similar type uh, occurrence. But of course, though, anybody who has pain that doesn't settle down their own accord, well, they'll need to uh, go on to see their local GP. Particularly also as well, people have any unusual symptoms associated with their lower back pain like weight loss or fevers. If they've got pain in their thoracic spine, that's quite uncommon and is uh, usually a reason for uh, more prompt investigation rather than a watch and wait. That's around your lungs, isn't it? That's right. That's that's the thoracic spine is the the spine in the chest uh, region. Um, And of course, people who've got a history of serious medical problems like an impaired immune system or malignancy, they'll, uh, of course, not fall into this usual category of watch and wait and expect things to settle down. They need to be checked on a little bit more carefully. Uh, And then, of course, if there's a trauma or something similar Mm. associated, if it's a fall or or the likes, then that needs, of course, not to be just ignored, 
particularly if you're more prone to that type of a, an injury, if you have osteoporosis or something similar, then you might need to be checked on a bit more carefully by your GP. It must be really hard though because you were speaking before, you know, when it's occupational related and it's like people still need to earn a living. So that must be really tricky for a lot of people and they're the people, are they often the people that will come and see you because it, their back pain, it sort of all relates to what how we first started the interview that it can cause you know, income issues because so are they the people that present to you quite often? It is and it's a really difficult position for people to be in. I think one of the, because it's such a well-recognised reason for people to take time off work and, and to not be able to continue in their occupation, it's something that big companies are really investing in trying to improve the working environment for their employees. And it's also something that there's a lot of research and improvement going on uh, to try and improve how people perform their occupations and be that in a heavy manual occupation. There's lots of uh, involvement in automation and uh, using uh, heavy equipment rather than uh, people's backs to perform mm. tasks. And also in an office environment, uh, there's certainly a lot of research and development that's gone into improving people's ergonomics if they're performing large amounts of seated work that we know is actually really bad for our back. And that's why I suppose the, um, the standing desks and things that have come about has been fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of early excitement for standing desks. Whether they proved in the very long term to make a significant difference is another uh, thing. But certainly it's, it's important not just having a standing desk, but uh, a whole awareness of how bad a sedentary lifestyle is actually for our back. And be that that we need to stand more often, walk more often, or engage in a pastime that activates our core muscles and helps with our uh, engage our body in normal movements. That's um, all uh, for further improvement. So, what treatment options are available to the people that have tried all those things and they're just not working? After someone's tried all the simple sort of treatments and they're still having back pain, and they've been to their GP yes. and their GP has. Uh, done all the standard investigations to make sure that there's nothing sinister going on, which actually in the vast majority of people, even though they have persistent back pain, there actually isn't an underlying structural cause or a, a sinister problem at play. It's then important to start to consider all of the factors in that person's life that might be contributing to why they're experiencing back pain. And there's lots of things that people might not routinely consider that can play a part in uh, causing their back pain that can be simply improved. So something that's really important to consider is that uh, people's weight, most of our weight actually goes through our lower back. And we know that people who are normal weight or in a healthy weight range, they'll experience lower back pain on average around 3% uh, of the time. Whereas around 7.5% of adults who are obese, they'll experience uh, low back pain in a year. So simply by reducing our weight, not always a simple task, mm. but by these, uh, by consideration of a person's weight and what mechanical effects it has on their back, we can start to look at some of the other causes of what's uh, resulting in spinal pain other than the spine itself. And it, it's been shown quite clearly that someone who's really what's in a category of uh, 
extreme obesity, so their BMI is more than 36, if they were to participate in around 17 minutes per day in what would be considered moderate activity, so brisk walking, water aerobics, riding a stationary bike or gardening, they'll actually reduce their risk for lower back pain by about a third. So there's simple types of activities and considerations that can be taken on board to help improve people's spinal health. There are some other things that can uh, be incorporated if people are having recurrent or longer-term back pain and the sinister type of problems have been excluded by their GP. So engaging in things like Pilates and uh, physiotherapy uh, can also be really helpful and have been shown uh, with good science to help settle people's symptoms over the long term and help people take ownership of the problem that they're experiencing. Very rarely as well, patients uh, might not be, despite engaging with physiotherapy and reducing their weight and developing more of a healthy lifestyle, they could be experiencing pain that continues and those people can often be helped further with the involvement of a pain specialist. And they not only prescribe medications, but they can perform simple interventions to help reduce the pain that people are experiencing in some cases. Okay. And then what are some of the most common conditions of why someone would be considered for spinal surgery? Look, we all experience wear and tear changes in our uh, body as we age. And one of the most obvious uh, ways that we see that is if we look at our knuckles, we can see our knuckles all start to, to swell and we get little bone spurs and things forming. It doesn't seem to bother us too much in our hands in most people, but unfortunately in our spine, there's no real extra room and there are nerves that go down to our legs or out to our arms that are in close proximity to where extra uh, bits of bone might be growing and joints may be swelling. And so this unfortunately can result in nerve irritation, which is experienced as what's called sciatica or brachialgia. And that's the pain that would radiate down to your hand or down to your uh, legs, commonly known as a pinched nerve mm -hmm. uh, as well. That's probably the main reason for people to consider spinal surgery as being a useful treatment for them. Um, and what's the latest advancement then in spinal surgeries? Is the advancements in that area of um, spinal surgery then? So there, there's lots of advancements going on in spinal surgery. It's one of the most exciting surgical fields, in my opinion. I'm a little bit biased. You're a little bit biased, <laughs> but <laughs> we'll forgive you for that. Uh, it, it, I think around every five years, spinal surgery seems to have reinvented itself. And it's uh, for good reason as well. Historically, spinal surgery... Uh, was associated with high risks, long recovery times and probably moderate uh, outcomes or improvements at best. Some of the main uh, areas of advancement have, uh, in my opinion, been safety. And so surgical safety on a whole has been greatly improved by uh, incorporating different uh, checks and, and uh, incorporating different uh, safety mechanisms in different uh, industries, including the aviation industry. But specifically in spinal surgery, uh, with the advent of computer uh, in incorporation and robotics into surgery, the precision in which the surgery is performed has dramatically improved. And so we look at things like the accuracy of implant placement. And so uh, around maybe 10, 15 years ago, if you looked at the accuracy of implant placement, it'd be around 
which sounds pretty good, but a 10% inaccuracy is not really acceptable when it comes to... You wouldn't to want it. to be in that 10%. You, you really <laughs> not ideally. <wouldn't. laughs> you really wouldn't. Um, and when you look at the the incorporation of computer-assisted surgery or what we call 3D navigation, which is, to, to, to put it, uh, it's like having uh, Google Maps for the spine incorporated mm. into your uh, operating theatre. You then start uh, being able to achieve an implant accuracy of 98%. And with some of the newer robotic uh, uh, devices now being incorporated, we're looking at more than 99% uh, accuracy. So that's huge uh, improvements in terms of surgical accuracy. And there, there's a lot more of a focus now as our patients rightly so demand a lot more of surgeons uh, to try and improve the speed at which people recover from surgery and to make it so that they return to their usual activities sooner. And we've recognised that uh, engaging in what's called min minimally invasive surgery, and so that's surgery that really reduces the amount of trauma to soft tissue, uh, that's rapidly been incorporated into spinal surgery and has really improve the outcomes for our patients in terms of how long they stay in hospital and how quickly they can return to their usual activities, be that work or be that their uh, pastimes. And one of the uh, most exciting things that my patients often ask me about, and it's been around for a few uh, years now, but it's, it's always improving in terms of its uh, safety and its uh, long-term outcomes, and that's what we call motion-preserving uh, surgery. And so spinal surgery is often associated with what's called fusion surgery, where we uh, cause two of the bones to grow themselves together. And that can result in stiffness and a loss of mobility. But some of the newer techniques either uh, avoid the need for that type of procedure or rather than fusing the two uh, bones together or, or potentially more than uh, two bones, uh, it involves placing an implant that allows continued movement of a uh, segment of the spine, like a disc replacement. And these sorts of things all add together. And so we've seen that every year there's new advancements and improvements that, uh, that will, at this rate, uh, continue to advance uh, spinal surgery well uh, further than what it currently is even at this day and age. And how does the body accept the implant in the spine? Hip and knee replacement surgery has been around uh, quite, or has been around successfully uh, since the 60s and 70s, and so that we uh, utilise the advancements that have gone in in terms of the um, uh, metallurgy and the understanding of what uh, uh, is accepted by the body. And so one of the uh, most common types of implants is what's called porous titanium. And so we've, we've worked out down to the micron uh, what um, structures of titanium the body and the bones are happy to accept and happy mm. to bond with. And so we quite reliably now are able to put in pieces of metal that the body accepts almost as its own and happily uh, grows into and onto and uh, holds it tightly forevermore in place. And does that make then the surgery more effective then? Because you're sounding like there's a lot more positives now, but does that make it a more effective surgery for people? Absolutely. So one of the biggest concerns is to put implants in and have the body either not bond with them or not accept them. Um, and as the implant technologies improve, the success rates and the efficacy of the surgeries improve as well. So how often are people up and at it um, after they've had surgery? So how long are they in surgery for? And take us through a journey. 
Spinal surgery is a really broad field. And yes. so I'll, I'll speak in uh, real generalizations of some of the more common types of procedures that are performed. So common types of procedures uh, that can all be grouped together are the nerve decompression type ones. So that might be a treatment for spinal stenosis. So uh, conditions that cause uh, heaviness and weakness in the legs or sciatica type pains or decompression of the nerves in the cervical spine that might be causing pain radiating down into the, the arm. <laughs> so typically with those um, type of procedures, my patients will stay in hospital for around one night on average, maybe two nights. They'll then return to their simple types of activities um, and, and taking maybe Panadol at, a, at the most in terms of their uh, painkiller requirements and they're uh, returning to office work, that type of thing, by about two weeks. But like most things, we do rely on the body's uh, ability to heal itself. And as much as we try to engineer things to uh, expedite the recovery, we still do rely on the body to be mostly healed by the time people are able to return to high-demand activities like sports and heavy manual work. And that usually takes around 8 to 12 weeks. The um, f the very nice thing about the more modern techniques of spinal surgery, though, are that we quite readily uh, relieve people of their nerve symptoms and the vast majority of them will be delighted with the fact they no longer have their sciatica or their, their awful brachialgia that was keeping them awake at night. And are they back exercising? So are you encouraging? When would they be able to start sort of brisk walking or going and walking in the water after surgery? It's a common question to find out about when people can return to their, their typical uh, exercises. And everybody's a little bit different and it certainly does depend on the type of procedure they've had done. But most people will be up and walking around 50 to 100 metres on the day following their surgery. That's, that's the typical goal. And then aiming to be walking around the block by about one to two weeks after their surgery. All of the bending and twisting and those uh, lifting type activities, they can take quite a few more weeks to uh, get back to though. Can you explain scoliosis and then the role of, you know, there's chiropractors and now there's manipulative, uh, the um, physiotherapists that do all the manipulations and where does it all fit into looking after back and, and neck pain? And then of course yourself. So you know, like, who do you see when? It can be a bit confusing. Uh, yes, certainly understandable. And you hear mixed messages all the time. It just depends on where uh, you look, whether it's Google or Facebook, or uh, you're bound to get 10 different answers to the question that you ask. So scoliosis, scoliosis, to be clear, is a curvature of the spine. And that's if you're looking at someone front to back and they're, they're curved from side to side. People are meant to have a curvature of their spine. If you look at them from the side, that's normal. Um, but scoliosis is actually a really common uh, condition and it affects around 3% of everybody. Mm. So in the vast majority of people, it's a really minor curvature of the spine. It doesn't need any treatment. It doesn't cause them any harm. However, when we look at the more severe types of scoliosis, the ones that can be noticeable, we look at them in two different categories of people and they've got two different uh, pathways for treatment. So there are the adolescents who have got scoliosis. They're the, one of the big groups. And then you've got your adults who have got scoliosis. And they, they're considered very separately. The adolescents who have got scoliosis or begin to develop scoliosis, their parents notice an asymmetry in their, uh, typically asymmetry in their back when they look at them. 
uh, well, they need to be managed by their GP and and very often they're managed by a, sp- a specialist spinal surgeon. And the reason is that these can rapidly develop into quite severe problems and early intervention and early treatment really can help to prevent uh, some of the more serious problems in the long term. One of the first treatments in patients who we see with adolescent scoliosis, if their curvature is uh, becoming more severe, is to treat them in a brace. And that's similar to how adolescents have their teeth treated in a brace. And that's to try and hold them in a straight position whilst they're growing to try and prevent it be- from becoming a serious curvature that might need treatment. It's actually quite rare that these curves will go on to become so severe uh, that they would cause disability, but there certainly are patients who will routinely uh, come through and be seen with such a severe curvature of their spine that they'll predictably go on to have uh, problems throughout their life and they'll then have surgical treatment to prevent that problem. And is surgery effective in scoliosis if if you do highly have more effective. severe? Highly effective. Highly effective, yeah. Okay. So scoliosis treatment in adolescence is exceptionally well studied in very, very long-term sets of data looking at patients over decades. And the surgical treatment of patients who need surgery, and and keep in mind very few actually need surgery, but the ones who do need surgery, it's exceptionally uh, effective and exceptionally safe. Adults with scoliosis are a separate group of uh, patients. So adults can develop scoliosis as a result of wear and tear changes on their spine. Fortunately, these patients, they're actually managed in the same way as adults who've got a straight back. So it's all the same things that I'd mentioned before. So things like modifying their activities to reduce the pain and and the cause of the pain that they're occurring, uh, they're experiencing, Um, engaging in a healthy lifestyle and healthy weight maintenance, and then involving health practitioners as they need. So that's typically a physiotherapist to help manage a flare of their symptoms. But it's important, I think, it's probably one of the most important things uh, for patients to be empowered to take control of their own treatment in this journey. And that can be uh, helped to be taught by their physiotherapist, the different types of stretches and strengthening exercises that they can engage in and the simple medications that they might be able to use if they had a flare of their pain. But I, but I and uh, most health practitioners in this area try to steer people away from those types of treatments that are disempowering, that they then become uh, really heavily reliant on someone else or, an, or a medication uh, to have a short-term quick fix that needs them reliant on someone else. Uh, I think it's important that they are able to take control of a condition that is their own so that they can manage it themselves and feel uh, in control of what's going on in their body. And have you had patients that they've come and they've seen you, they're suffering you know, chronic back pain, you've worked with them on those things and they've ended up not needing surgery? They've ended up owning, owning that, losing weight, going to the physio, exercising, and it's changed there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's highly effective. So education and and self-empowerment to understand that whilst there is an underlying problem, it's not a dangerous problem for most people. It's not a sinister problem. It's not something that's going to cause disability or paralysis, that with the right treatment and the right mindset and the right simple uh, uh, implementations of activities, 
they can take control of their own life again. And whilst they might have it, the occasional flare of back pain, it doesn't disable them or stop them engaging the things they'd like to. And then for the people that do end up having surgery, um, what are the expectations that you, you communicate with them so they're very clear of what they are prior to surgery? I think it's really important for patients to have absolutely clear goals, what we're aiming to achieve and what they should expect to experience through their recovery. So the most important thing is what people should expect during their surgery and in their what we call the perioperative phase. So what they should expect when they come into hospital, the people they'll meet, and then how long they're likely to stay in hospital. Like I said, most patients are only in hospital one or two nights. And the vast majority, it's usually one night. And there are now some centres that are starting to uh, practice surgery and um, the rehabilitation in such a way that spinal surgery becomes a day surgery. There are some centres even practising fusion surgery as day surgery. Following uh, their procedure, patients can expect to gradually return to their usual activities over the course of around 8 to 12 weeks with gradual improvements uh, as guided usually by my physiotherapists. And that can be different from person to person and it depends on their um, progress. Some patients are uh, come from a very, very high baseline. So they're active uh, sports people. And so their ability to return to office work and, and uh, walking on their block might be a lot uh, sooner than somebody whose baseline's a little bit lower because they've been putting up with their disability for a lot longer before having treatment. And then how safe is spinal surgery? Because we were speaking just before and I don't know what conjures up the fear, but how safe is spinal surgery now for everyone to know? We'll get it out there. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of risky surgery or uh, yeah, high risk and high reward, it's a Hollywood creation. <laughs> it's uh, Surgeons and uh, myself especially are exceptionally risk averse. We like boring. We like to have a boring day in the operating theatre. We we like things to be pre-planned, to know the precise outcome that we're going to ex expect and to have no uh, mishaps or otherwise. And we go to exceptional lengths uh, to ensure that this occurs. So on a whole, I would say that modern spinal surgery is very safe. There's, as I mentioned before, constant innovation and development in absolutely every aspect of surgery. And that's from the pre-operative assessment. So we've uh, identified that uh, patients can actually be improved long and their outcomes be improved, can be improved before they ever enter the operating theatre. And so uh, most of my patients will uh, undergo a physician uh, examination and workup and will ensure that they're actually in, in perfect or as near perfect uh, medical health as possible. And any interventions to improve perhaps their heart function or lung function are enacted before uh, the surgery is considered. Then there's uh, improvements in the anaesthetic techniques because we know that if we have a shorter anaesthetic, certain medications are or aren't used and pain control is absolutely optimised, well, the patients recover uh, much much sooner and uh, there's lower risks of uh, surgical complications after uh, their procedure. Then of course the surgery itself has been hugely advanced and continues to be advanced every single year. 
be that the involvement of uh, precise computer navigation, be that improvements in the technique in itself to minimise soft tissue uh, injury and handling, and be that the improvements in the implants that uh, are used. And then we look at the recovery uh, programs that are involved uh, for patients. That Some of the hospitals I trained at, their wards were designed for patients to be in bed for three months after their surgery. It's near uh, laughable at, at, mm, in this sort of day and age, but that's what spinal surgery used to be, that p- patients would be in hospital for three months afterwards. Now, our recovery programs are aimed at assessing patients as to what their baseline is and enabling them to rapidly return to the way that they were. The um, the vast majority of patients will uh, proceed through their spinal surgery and treatment and recovery and won't experience any form of side effect or adverse outcome. But it is important that all surgery has an element of risk with it. So in, in no uh, way is any form of surgery or procedure uh, risk-free. But that's similar to most things in life. Even driving your car uh, carries some sort of risk with it. How long will patients actually feel better? So perhaps they came in with a pain score of, you know, that was quite high, but how long after the surgery would they see a change in that pain becoming less and less? One of the um, most satisfying things in all of medicine is uh, providing someone with an immediate cure to their problem, which is what actually drew, uh, drew me to spinal surgery. And so a person who comes in with a clear compression upon their nerve, be that from a disc bulge, uh, be that from a bone spur, the very vast majority of patients, if that's removed, they wake up and their pain is immediately gone. joking. No, so it's... For the vast majority of patients, it's like a light switch has turned off and their pain is relieved. And is there any other way of not pinching, like stopping the pinching without having to go in and operate? Or not really? It's the fact you just take that away. There are some different treatments that we always try and uh, pursue before uh, going down the the route of essentially, you know, decompressing a mechanical problem. Mm. Um, And so there are different uh, treatments and be that with the physiotherapists and engaging nerve gliding and sliding type treatments or injections of uh, cortisone like steroid medication to help try and settle these things without needing to mechanically decompress them. But if it, if it does come to the, uh, the stage that all of these non-surgical type type measures have failed, well, decompressing nerves is, is highly successful. Um, in the long term, though, there are certainly that doesn't apply to absolutely every patient who has nerve compression. And there are some patients who, look, they've had nerve compression for a very long time and as a result they've deconditioned and their legs have become weak. Uh, maybe they're not able to walk as far as they used to or stand for as long as they used to. Whilst decompressing those patients' nerves dramatically improves the function of the nerves, they can take four or six weeks until their muscle function starts to improve um, to a, a, a good point to where they're happy. And do the spurs come back? There's always the possibility that uh, bone spurs reform or discs can bulge again. But again, the vast majority of patients, once that uh, compression is treated, and we always add a little bit of uh, room uh, to try and prevent uh, things rapidly reoccurring, uh, they normally don't. And then what are the most common misconceptions of spinal surgery? So I'm sure you've heard them all. <laughs> Let's demystify them today. I hear them just about every day, to be honest. Um, 
I think number one that, that we mentioned is that it's risky. Spinal surgery is not uh, risky. We don't engage in risky surgery. Uh, um, if I was engaged in uh, risky surgery, I, I think I wouldn't be able to um, be here today. I don't think that uh, most spinal surgeons would be able to continue with their surgery day to day for years on end. Uh, it wouldn't be good for their own health and it certainly isn't good for the health of their patients. So that's uh, the number one uh, misconception. I think the second misconception that is the most worrying for patients is that spinal surgery is really painful. Mm. So patients who've got nerve compression are in a lot of pain most of the time and they're really fearful of being in even more pain. Which makes sense because, you you know, you want the surgery to relieve the pain so the last thing they want to do is put themselves in the situation where it gets worse. Absolutely. Spinal surgery, fortunately modern spinal surgery with modern anaesthetic techniques and modern uh, pain relief agents is it's certainly not pain-free but it's uh, certainly not terribly painful or anything like that. Most people experience only a mild amount of discomfort and like I said, most patients are up and mobile either yeah. that day or the day following it. And is it keyhole? So do they leave with a little scar? or There's a push towards... Um, uh, both what we call keyhole surgery or minimally invasive yes. surgery. And it's always a balance um, of surgical safety um, versus uh, the need to be able to uh, minimise soft tissue trauma. So it, it's a, a very careful balance between the two. Um, I think one of the other main misconceptions uh, that people um, will have with spinal surgery though, is that spinal surgery can help everyone. Yes. And, and unfortunately, as the science behind spinal surgery advances, we become more and more aware that spinal surgery actually, unfortunately, isn't a perfect solution to everybody's problem. And there's lots of people who might have back pain or an, a nerve type pain and spinal surgery isn't actually a useful option uh, to help them either predictably or in the long term. And that's why we uh, all need to carefully consider uh, what we consider a risk and benefit analysis. And so it might be that some patients, the likely benefit to them is quite minimal, uh, weighed up against uh, what, what might be uh, you know, a high risk for them given that they have other medical conditions or otherwise that might make things uh, sway towards thinking that surgery is not the right solution for them. And I'm sure people's pain gets to a point where they're so desperate, meaning that they, they have tried a lot of those things in their mind and they're just not getting any relief, that they look to spinal surgery or maybe they've had a friend who's had it and had great results or Absolutely. they've heard of someone that's had it and it's been like life-changing and they're like, that's it, that's the, that's what I have to have. But then who can you help? Who can spinal surgery really help? So that's, that's right. So spinal surgery, the most successful spinal surgery is spinal surgery to remove compression on a nerve. Mm -hmm. That's uh, the by far and away the most uh, useful form of spinal surgery that the patients feel the most amount of relief uh, and improvement in. Unfortunately, patients who have had very long-standing back pain without a clear source of uh, the pain or a structural abnormality identified, um, those uh, unfortunate patients so that might not experience the most amount of relief from spinal surgery and might not actually be considered uh, 
as a patient that could undergo spinal surgery successfully. And are those the patients that sometimes they go on to see a pain specialist? Would that be the... Exactly. So we work really closely uh, with pain specialists as there are patients who will see and assess and help to identify that there isn't a sinister or nasty or or troublesome cause of their pain, but they're certainly still experiencing pain. And pain can be a very difficult thing. We don't see pain on an MRI and and, uh, we can't experience the pain of someone else. Pain is a a sense that only one person experiences and can't often be visualised. And so we do uh, rely heavily on the involvement of a pain specialist uh, for their expertise in improving uh, patients. And then how can we prevent back and neck pain? Because I suppose, as you said, quite commonly all of us are going to experience it at some point in our life. Um, so then how how do you recommend to your, to your patients to prevent it? Yeah, it's probably one of the most important things is prevention. Prevention is always better than a cure, as they say. So if I had to put a list together, the number one thing would be to maintain a healthy weight. Easier said than done, as we said before. (laughs) It certainly is easier said than done. But unfortunately, uh, being overweight or being obese results not only in an overload of the small joints and discs that make up our lower back, but it also has a a number of metabolic type effects that accelerate the ageing process. The second uh, component or second uh, in my list of things that would be to prevent uh, neck and back pain would be not smoking. Really? How's yeah. smoking related? So smoking cigarettes uh, unfortunately interferes with the blood supply that uh, provides nutrients to the discs in the uh, lumbar spine, the cervical spine in particular. And I could almost look at an MRI and tell you that person smokes cigarettes based on how rapidly they'll uh, manage to have their discs degenerate. So it's one of the most important things to prevent uh, uh, back and neck pain. So if people cease smoking, do you see their back pain um, subsiding or? I'm not sure if that you'd see it subside or uh, or go from being uh, terrible to perfect, yeah. but certainly uh, ceasing smoking would be a way to stop it from continuing to get yeah. worse predictably. Yep. There are so many people who I say to them, your smoking has caused or at least has been a significant contributing factor towards the degeneration that's in your neck that's now causing your terrible arm pain or your terrible uh, leg pain. They say, I wish I had have known this. Absolutely. Um, all, the, all the concern about, you know, long-term problems in my 50s and 60s and 70s. Well, I didn't realise this would cause me a problem in my 40s. Um, in, next in my list, though, would be uh, a mindfulness of people's working positions and as we're all working from home, being hunched over a laptop yeah. or your mobile phone, that's really quite clearly been shown to uh, uh, cause neck pain. And that's a simple mechanical overload of what is a very delicate structure that's your neck. Our necks were never designed to be hunched over a laptop. And the weight of our head when uh, tipped forward adds magnitudes of load through our cervical spine in particular. And then there's the the common things that you might expect. Uh, So avoiding those bending, lifting and twisting type tasks and being mindful of the way that we're uh, engaging in what what could be manual activities. And then there's all the things that we can actively do. So those are a whole lot of don'ts, but the things that are the do's. So that's engaging in moderate physical activity and avoiding a sedentary lifestyle. 
So simple things like swimming, cycling, or a brisk walk around the block, all have been scientifically shown to improve people's uh, lower back pain and help prevent them from developing if they don't have it. So keeping mobile and losing weight and all the, all the things we're told, it's not the, smoking. Exactly. It's all the things that your mum might have told you, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So then just to end, what are three key messages out of all that we've spoken today that, that you think we should remember about spinal health, spinal surgery? You can wrap it up into three messages. <laughs> Big ask. We've, we've spoken a lot, so to, to really uh, hone it into three key messages uh, if there was only three things to, to take out of this. So um, I think number one would be be mindful of your lower back, especially if you're working. It's the number one cause of early retirement. The second message that I'd like people to take home would be that most lower back pain will actually settle down without any intervention and the vast majority of causes don't have an underlying sinister or nasty problem that can be identified. But it is important that people develop strategies to be empowered and take ownership of their problem and don't rely on those short, quick-term fixes like medications or a, a quick manipulation or something like that that disempowers them and, and takes the ownership of uh, improving their situation away. The final uh, message of uh, that I'd uh, say that would be a take-home message would be that if indeed you have a persistent problem and uh, your GP refers you to see a specialist spinal surgeon, don't be too anxious. <laughs> Look, modern treatments aren't what uh, your best friend's hairdresser's dog walker might have had uh, to them 15 years ago. We focus really just on relieving people's symptoms with absolute minimal discomfort and downtime. So it's not the end of the world and, and please don't expect some awful three-month stay in hospital uh, if you come to see me. Well, hopefully we've relieved um, that after listening to this podcast because I think we've all learnt that spinal surgery has come a long way. So thank you so much for your time today and I'm definitely going to take a picture of this fabulous um, uh, structure you've got on your <laughs> desk and we'll, we'll uh, put that on the Instagram so everyone can see uh, what we've been talking about today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. A big thank you to Dr Cunningham for sharing his knowledge with us today on MediTalk and to learn more about Dr Cunningham and St John of God Hospital Subiaco, visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of MediTalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.